I think I was 15 or so, and one of the captains I was working with, I, I was the mate on, on the boat, we were a charter fishing boat, told me about this word called spindrift, and it was, you know, the way we were getting pounded by surf coming back from Great Point, kind of the far end of the island, and it was a beautiful sunny day, but we were soaking wet, and he said, you know what this, this mist is that is blowing off of the top of these waves? I, I didn't, and he said, well, it's called spindrift, and it's, it's referring to sort of the whitewash of the wave as, as the wind blows, and it shears the top of the wave off. And for some reason, I just thought that word was really interesting. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, we are talking about sparkling water. Not just any sparkling water, but flavored sparkling water. And hey, you, yeah, you, the listener who's a non-reviewer, I know who you are. And seriously, what gives? You know that this podcast ain't cheap, but we continue to produce it as a service to you. How about you turn that non-reviewer frown upside down and rate and review us over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Apple and Spotify use these ratings as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on their charts, and reviewing is cool. Everyone's doing it. All right, let's get on with the show. Hear that? Mm. Cold, refreshing sparkling water. Now, today, we have sparkling water easily accessible at our fingertips. We have all sorts of brands that are producing it non-flavored, flavored. We have spiked sparkling water. Uh, We have all sorts of seltzers. But if you think about it, it wasn't always that way. Sparkling water is kind of a new thing. And today's guest is Bill Creelman the founder and CEO of Spindrift. Yeah, Spindrift, that deliciously flavored sparkling water with real fruit juice. And as you'll hear on today's show, Bill is an entrepreneur and his journey has been anything but straight and easy. Today, Spindrift is made up of over 100 passionate employees dedicated to changing the sparkling beverage industry. Spindrift is leading beverages into a new age of innovation, transparency, and ingredient simplicity by offering a product with no artificial sweeteners, no natural flavorings, and no essences, just sparkling water and real squeezed fruit. Spindrift was named Inc. Magazine's 500 Fastest Growing Companies, is a two-time recipient of BevNet's Product of the Year, and was featured on one of my favorite podcast, the one that this Baby Got Backstory whole podcast was based on, NPR's How I Built This in 2020. Bill lives outside of Boston with his wife, Harley, and four kids, and this is his story. I'm here with Bill Creelman, the founder and CEO of Spindrift. Bill, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate the uh, the time. Yeah, absolutely. And before we get into it, we're going to hear all about uh, Spindrift and and how you founded the company. But for those listeners that may not be familiar with this delicious flavored sparkling water, uh, why don't you set it up a little bit and tell people what is Spindrift? So we are we are the alternative challenger brand in a very big category called sparkling water. So. Uh, our point of difference, you know, among uh, kind of a, a big crowded category is we offer real ingredients as the base for the flavor. So we go out and gather lemons, oranges, grapefruits, uh, berries from around the country and, and literally squeeze them 
and add them to sparkling water instead of using a natural flavor, which is really where the category uh, lives today. And the result is this sort of delicious, uh, you know, pretty full flavored, a little pulpy, uh, colorful alternative um, to sparkling water. Yeah, and I don't want to get too far down this this part of the the story, but you said something that really caught my attention, and and you said that we put real <laughs> fruit and ingredients in the water. I mean, is that so rare? Is that something that is just not happening prior to Spindrift? It, it really is like just strictly from an ingredient perspective, um, it does not exist other than our brand. So, you know, it does. It, it seems. Like, it's almost an absurd statement to make. Like, how could that be true? So, yeah, the category, you know, is really developed off of the back of natural flavors. Natural flavors, we don't really know quite what these things are. There are 3,000 ingredients that are regulated outside of the FDA. They could originate with a fruit. They may not. Um, You know, you really don't know as a consumer. So, we just kind of left that conversation where it was and, and went with a product that we recognize, you know, fruit has color and has a little pulp. And that's where we're kind of happy, um, um, you know, and that's really our big point of difference in this space. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll get into this further, but it just blows my mind that this is something that we're, we're not all uh, already experiencing or hadn't experienced prior to Spindrift. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. But as, you know, you were a young kid and as you were, you know, getting going probably around the ripe age of nine or something like that. Did you think that you would be in the sparkling beverage category, uh, as it were? Was that something that you had always dreamed of? I not specifically this. I mean, I so I was I was a I was lucky enough to be exposed to food at a really young age. Both kind of where food came from. I was I was grew up in a kind of farming environment out in Western Massachusetts. Um, and then I had, I was lucky enough to also go out to the Cape and Islands to, to, uh, where I got to see, you know, fish and lobsters and oysters. So, and then I just, I love food. I, I, even as a little kid, I was always the, the one that ordered the weird thing on the menu that no one else wanted to try. So I, I think this is a story of, of like, just really being lucky enough to take something I enjoy doing on the weekends and turn it into into a, into a job during the week. Yeah, and so when you were that age, and did you did you grow up on a working farm or do you have? No, it was it just like a thirty acre farm on Western Mass that was uh, had a garden and we had a bunch of animals. So it was not yeah we did not do any commercial farming, but you know we grew a lot of stuff and that was sort of the mentality of the far, the, the town. It actually still is, you know, kind of that way out there. And that had a big impact on me for sure. I mean, you know, we, uh, we, we definitely, I, I feel like I took some of that sensibility with, with me. So was that your dream as a kid where you did, did you want to be a chef or involved in food or was there something else that was catching your attention at, at that point? Yeah, I think, I mean, the great thing about food and why, you know, if you if you go to like a food show, you'll see lots of people with family recipes is that it's incredibly accessible and and it's fun. You know, generally you're making something, sharing it with, with friends and and so I I think all of that was interesting to me and it really still is interesting. You know, I love what I I love the design side of, of, of this space. I, I love the recipe development side, you know, the selling of it is really interesting to me, like just to go out and propose something to a to a retailer or a restaurant that they may not have tried. So it kind of hits a whole bunch of things, I would say, for me. And I and I knew I was interested in definitely doing something on my own. I, I was not. My dad worked in in kind of big CBG, worked for Spalding Sports um, out in Western Mass for a number of years, and he really was kind of pushed me to try to do something on my own. And, um, and so that, that was nice to have that sort of backing throughout. Yeah. And that's interesting. Why'd your dad push you to, you know, based on his experience, why did he think, Hey, that'd be way better if Bill were doing something on his own versus working at Spalding after me? Yeah. He, you know, I, I think he loved his, I know he loved his time there. Um, I think it had to do 
with some of the macro climate he was seeing, just recognizing the big brands, the idea he went to college and worked for a big brand that everyone knew, that idea was starting to fade away. I think he he himself was introduced to some entrepreneurs, young people that had started things and could see their excitement. And it wasn't an excitement that he necessarily thought <clears throat> existed in kind of a bigger, more established business. Um, and, you know, I, I, I guess for all of those reasons, he was just, they, he and, and my mom were both like incredibly supportive. I mean, literally, especially given some of the failed businesses early on. Um, so, yeah, I think that, I mean, that is, that is so important, you know, because uh, it's, I, I know it's not always the case, you know, there's often pressure to go do something more conventional and, I didn't have any of that, you know, as far as they were concerned, we could kind of do whatever we wanted. And, uh, you know, if you made money, if you, you know, you obviously needed to support your family and sort of remain buoyant, but there was no pressure to do anything conventional, let's call it. Yeah. And so, I mean, was that the narrative and the message as you were going through high school? And if so, what was your, pl- what was your plan for after high school? I mean, did you go to college or were you like, I'm going to go start a business right away? So I, I jumped in with both feet pretty early. I mean, I started tinkering around with sort of starting my own thing, if you want to call it that, from, you know, super early. So, you know, we, we, we worked a, a food stand at a craft fair in, in our town starting at, you know, eight, nine, ten. Uh, we, we tried to, you know, we started handing out business cards to, to just sort of do odd jobs like in our early teens and and then tried to start like a little sort of painting business in, in high school and, and and then eventually I got into the to the fishing business. I was a mate and then I got my captain's license to, to run my own boat when I was, you know, kind of twenty or twenty one. And and just like, you know, silly silly ideas along the way that that were fun and interesting, um, all centered around food, usually food or drinks or, um, so I, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I had done enough by the time I got to college that I knew that it was interesting to me. And there was absolutely no history of success at all at this point. It was much more defined by failure, uh, for sure. But, it was really fun and challenging, and that and that really, I think, was what what I was excited about continuing after after uh, after school. Yeah, and you had mentioned uh, as you were you were talking about some of those businesses, you said we. Uh, who who were you building those businesses with? Well, I, either friends or my my brother, uh, who who also was interested in this sort of stuff. Um, so so the. The painting business, uh, he, he was trying to, he's a couple years older and he was trying to get off the ground. And so I kind of tagged along, you know, he had a, he had a little like, you know, 19th hole golf, you know, shack, food shack that he was running with a friend. And I jumped in on that. I mean, it was, it, we were just always conspiring to try to figure out sort of ways to, to do fun food things that, and not always food, but just businesses with the idea that wouldn't it be interesting if this idea that we have was also appealing to other people besides us. And that was, that was really the level of complexity that it, it lived at. <laughs> for sure. For sure. But, and, and even that to me is a little bit interesting because as we know, uh, really one of the keys to a successful business is solving a problem that people have. But I, I, I remember that when I was young and starting business, I would, I didn't care about problems. You know, my, it was my problem. My problem was I wanted some money or I wanted a business or I wanted to do something cool. So was, was there some of that in there or were you really, even yeah. at that age, like seeing some like, Oh wait, there's a gap here and I'm, I'm going to solve it. No, definitely not at that level of sophistication. No, really more was like, I, I want to, you know, I, I need to have spending money in order to, you know, fuel, put fuel in my car and, and maybe live on, you know, independently. You know, we, he and I started living on our own. I think I was 15 when I, when I started living away in the summers and he was 17. And, and, and so, you know, all of that takes, takes resources. And, um, 
and there was just there was a very brightly lit line between you know the need to fund all of this and then you know having to be kind of to, to come up with a solve on your own you know there wasn't there was never this thought that someone else was going to swoop in and <laughs> fund it up on our behalf and um so that that's you know that's really where a lot of that that thinking started yeah and so and maybe i missed it i apologize if you said this did you end up from there going to uh school or did you get right into no i did no i went i went to high school in western massachusetts and then i went to college in washington dc and, and literally the day after i graduated from georgetown i i took my captain's test and went out and began trying to get a, a captain's uh, uh, I got my captain's license to begin running, running a boat. Um, but, 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 but actually an important part of sort of chapter in this was while I was at Georgetown, I took an entrepreneurship class. And this was when entrepreneurship um, really was not part of any university curriculum to speak of, or at least it wasn't something that was on my radar. And Georgetown had, had a, had a program that they offered. It was just, you know, kind of a one class program you could opt into. And, and the, the only assignment for the class was to write a business plan. And you, you, uh, you worked the entire semester, handed it in and whatever your grade was on that, on that paper was your grade for the semester. And, and that, um, that was, a, that was an incredible, really neat moment for me because I, I didn't realize that you could, you know, organize yourself that way around, you know, writing down an idea and putting the structure to it and then building a P&L in and building a team and, and then margin and all the things that, you know, a normal business would have. Prior to that, it was just more, you know, kind of, you know, yellow legal pad and, and sort of working as we went and hoping for the best. So it was actually, it was then that idea for, it was my business plan was a Nantucket smokehouse. It was a it was a, it was, it was really the idea of using smoked foods from, from Nantucket Island and offering it year round uh, to consumers who couldn't get to, Nant- to Nantucket. It's can be hard to get to, you know, in the off season. And, and that, that was not an idea I pursued, but it was the foundation of my first business that was called Nantucket Harvest. And that, that was really where that was when I formalized and created an LLC and got a business partner and, and really went into the food business formally for the first time. And, and, and that's, I'm making the connection why you then went and got your captain's license and, and yeah. you're doing that chapter. And, that, and that's like crazy to me, by the way, like, like what, you know, I, when I was in college, I certainly wasn't thinking like, Hmm, what kind of fancy foods do people want? Or, you know, or like, how do I bring like food? To, I mean, that was just not the way I was thinking. And so I'm super like impressed and just amazed that this was at the front of your, the front of your thought and your insight, but also like, how did you think that you could do this? I think it was just sort of foolish confidence, honestly, because that ultimately the business was was not all that successful. It was it was super exciting and fun, and we eventually turned that business into a different business that that was successful. But I was I think I just just didn't know enough to realize that I was about to take on a bunch of risks and challenges that we ultimately had. But honestly, like that same energy that I mentioned earlier. I had at that age. I just loved working with. So the business, the idea of the business was after the smokehouse, Nantucket Harvest became working with local purveyors from from the island of Nantucket, but even more broadly, we brought in other island, the other Martha's Vineyard, and then Cape Cod, and and um, we just loved working with these incredible products. You know, smoke bluebirds pate and scallops and a local, uh, an ice cream manufacturer. And, and, um, and so honestly, even if we weren't trying to figure out how to make it into a business, like just the idea of working with them was what was really interesting. And, and that, I think that is, there's a thread between Nantucket Harvest and Spindrift. It's, it's still that same way. Like, you know, I, I just get 
so much pleasure personally out of working with, you know, farmers that are working with their hands and growing something that's delicious. And, and then we get the opportunity to re reimagine it as a sparkling water. Like, you know, that, that's just, I don't, there's something about that idea that's really exciting to me. And, and it, you know, and, and so that was, and Tugget Harvest was the first time I got to really experience that. Uh, and so what happened with Nantucket Harvest? Like, why did that not take off? What was hard about it? So, so this was right when the internet was starting, not to date myself, but, and, and, and it, it actually worked really well for sort of two months of the year. So October, November, into the beginning part of December, so people were buying holiday, you know, Thanksgiving and, and holiday food items to give as gifts or for themselves. And the problem was the other 10 months of the year, when people just in general, and I would say this is even true somewhat today, like they just don't purchase those types of products that way year round. And so there's some people that have cracked it. You know, Harry and David has done a great job and there are others, Dean and DeLuca, to a certain extent. So, so we just, um, we would do really well for the holidays and then, you know, the business would sort of tail off. The, the good part about it though was, we were learning like crazy and we were meeting all these interesting people. And one of the people we ended up putting into our Nantucket Harvest sort of assortment had a really successful wholesale business. Um, he was making dry rubs grilling um, without any salt and sugar, really kind of a progressive um, product for its time uh, called Nantucket Offshore Seasonings. Nantucket Offshore um, is what we shortened it to. And, he became our business partner. So we, we sort of supplemented our, our revenue and, and spread out some of our, our risk and built some efficiencies by adding his product to our, to our assortment and offered it year round. And, and that's where we first began working with Whole Foods and, and William Sonoma and a number of other retailers that have become you know, great relationships for us uh, long term. And so then what, what became of that business? So you're, you're, you've got, as it's working out for you in the seasonality of the fishing business and, and bringing those, those purveyors together. And then it sounds like the Nantucket offshore, the seasoning business, that's really propping things up, but, but maybe, maybe, um, maybe, maybe not as much as I interpreted it, but like, so what, what happens with that, with that business? So as, as I, as I feel like, is a theme on, on your show and, and just in, in what I've experienced in my career, you end up at the decision point of stuff, you know, somewhere you realize you can't do everything well. And now we have a name for it. We call it simplified and amplify. Uh, so we, we eventually got to a point where we couldn't operate both um, successfully and eventually just stopped producing Nantucket harvest catalogs and sort of, you know, purchasing those wares and focused our time entirely on Nantucket offshore. The other thing that happened that we, and this was, you know, a part luck and, and I think, but also a part that we were well positioned is we came out with a line of, of cocktail products. It was basically an, an add-on to the, the grub, the rubs for grilling. We added uh, rimming sugars, so the, the sugars that go around you know, the rim of a, of a cocktail glass, but it was just as cocktails were starting to become popular again in the early 2000s. So things sort of Carrie Bradshaw, Sex of the City, like Cosmos, you know, that, that time in our lives. And suddenly cocktails were everywhere. And it was also at the same time that premium spirits were starting to become popular in the U.S. Um, this is you know, uh, the advent of kind of Grey Goose and Chopin and Kettle One and Absolute and all of these great, really high quality spirits did not have a mixer to go with them. It was, so all this interest in cocktails, great l- liquor products, but no mixers. And so we we ended up chasing what was what started as just a rimming sugar became a whole line of cocktail products called stirrings. And Stirrings um, was was really for you know four or five years was really kind of <laughs> whatever the third generation of Nantucket Harvest that we 
we really put a lot of time and energy into, and we ultimately sold that business to Diageo, you know, kind of the mid 2000s. Well, I love that you forever have like made me think of that time in history as the Sex in the City Cosmo <laughs> era. But the uh, and and we'll talk about that exit in just a second. I'm assuming it was a good one, but kind of back to that that decision point where the why in the road and you had a dream, you know, and it you're a you know you put a lot of energy into it. You're fishing boat captain, and was that a hard decision to make to to split off and let Nantucket Harvest go? It, it really was. I, I think, you know, later on in my life, you know, those decisions I think are, are, are clear. At that time, it was, it was really driven by two things. I mean, one is we were, we were heavily leveraged financially. I mean, I had not really drawn a salary in 10 years, you know, any kind of anything meaningful. We started living off of my, my wife's salary and, huge amounts of debt. We had had a number of manufacturing issues. So, so I would love to say it was like a choice that it was much more, you know, survival mode. Like how do we, how do we all keep this going to live to tell? And really when you looked at a very kind of unbiased view of the P&Ls of these different businesses, it became pretty clear that the most uh, sensible, reliable, choice was going to be in this wholesale business and specifically, you know, continuing to focus on, on the cocktail products. And I think, you know, you, I guess what I would say is like, you make those decisions in part because you think they're the right decisions for the business, but the consumer also makes those decisions ultimately for you. And the cocktail products were, were just, really outperforming anything else we were doing. We had people calling left and right retailers and consumers saying like, Hey, we, we think this is really neat. Would you, you know, would you be willing to sell them here or there? And, and really, so the, you know, the consumer spoke, I think loudest. And then the business, you know, from a very cold and calculated point of view, you know, the, the sort of, we knew enough by then to say, we, we want to be in a business that's less risky and more predictable uh, than, than, than the other business models that we were playing around with at the time. Well, and I can imagine, you, you said it was 10 years. Uh, you mentioned that you know, you're pretty much living off your, your wife's income from her job. I mean, let's talk about that for a second. What she's saying, <laughs> is she like, you know, go Bill, go? Or is she like, when are you going to like stop uh, chasing this fishing thing? That's, that's actually a much more interesting interview than this interview. You know, she, her point of view is, is uh, crazy, really, and, and, and probably not fairly represented. I mean, you know, this was, and, and, and you know, talking to entrepreneurs, I know that this is true for all partners, um, but it, w- it was exhausting, frankly. I mean, just, you know, to have constantly be running out of money, constantly, you know, sort of setting a timeline and then not meeting it for whatever, you know, say, well, well, in next year, things will, you know, things will be easier or less challenging, less challenging. You know, that's, that is, um, that is not a fun way to spend your twenties and, you know, early thirties. And so, I, I mean, you know, not, I don't know if this is oversharing, but, you know, I remember when I, when I purchased her wedding ring, uh, you know, I, I had to purchase it on a credit card. And I think I, it was something like 40% interest rate because my credit was so horrible. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it, uh, when, when, when we were eventually married and began sort of sharing finances, she, she got to see these bills coming in at a 40% interest rate. She said, what, what, like who would ever sign up for this? And it was, you know, so the, the I think, um, I think it was, it was really hard. And, uh, you know, I am, I am incredibly grateful. You know, I think part of it was fun and exciting and interesting and different, but, you know, at, at the very core of it, I mean, you have to have someone that's willing to go on that journey with you. I mean, there's just, it is not for everyone to uh, to have that amount of. It's really the uncertainty. I think that's so hard, just not really knowing on a day to day basis for planning purposes and 
you know, life planning, financial planning, you know, family plan, like you just, you really, really are not ever totally sure, you know, you know, what will happen next. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm incredibly lucky and grateful uh, in that, in this instance. A common question I get all the time is, Mark, can you help me with our brand? Yes, we help companies solve branding problems. And the first step would be to schedule a no-obligation brand clarity call. We'll link to that in the show notes or head over to wildstory.com and send us an email. We'll get you booked right away. So whether you're just getting started with a new business or whether you've done some work and need a refresh, or whether you're a brand that's high-performing and wants to stay there, we can help. After you book your brand clarity call, you'll learn about our brand audit and strategy process. We'll identify if you need a new logo or just a refresh. We'll determine if your business has a branding problem, and you'll see examples of our work and get relevant case studies. We'll also see if branding is holding your business back and can help you get to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Build the brand you've always dreamed of. Again, we'll link to that in the show notes or head over to wildstory.com and send us an email. Now back to the show. So why didn't you quit? You know, prior to that, that sale to Diageo, like why, like, like 10 years of like uncertainty, not knowing, like grinding and out, like. Why didn't you quit? We had seen, so when we started, you know, years, I don't know, let's use like five or six years in, as we made this decision to pivot to cocktails and and move away from the the mail-order business and move away from the rubs and focus just on cocktails, I think there was enough now there that we felt we had to kind of see it through to the end. I mean, ultimately, we were sort of proven right and wrong to a certain extent. I mean, cocktails were very popular for a period of time. And then actually, in the late 2000s, when the economy turned, it actually kind of went the other way. And so it was a great lesson just in in, in our business where food and trends around what people like for a while and then don't like, you know, that is, that is, that is a something... We, we are very acutely aware of and are constantly, managed, you know, kind of mindful of. But I think I just to answer your question more directly, like, I think it was, we felt there was enough there. And, and I think, I think in, in a sense, you have to be a little bit hard headed in this business because, you know, there's, there's going to be reasons, you know, daily that, you know, it, this does not make any sense. I mean, you hear no or, not interested or, you know, sorry, not the right time. I mean, that's all you hear for, for the early stages of these businesses from retailers, from, from bankers, from lenders, from, you know, investors. Um, so like challenges, just broadly speaking, are an everyday part of what we do. And so it didn't feel insurmountable to continue to power through. We ended up, you know, we ended up getting approached in a kind of to, as an investor, not to purchase a business with this, with a, a liquor company and that Diageo. And so that, that also helped us believe like, okay, we're not the only ones who think this is an interesting idea. There actually are other people out there that, that see this as the same opportunity. And so that certainly, you know, was a breathe some energy into the room too. Yeah, and with that, you know, sale to Diageo, I mean, was that like a huge win? Like, were you like, oh my gosh, like, yeah. yeah. No, it wasn't. I mean, it's funny. I, so, so no, the, the, the economy definitely impacted that outcome. And, and while it was fine, you know, uh, and, and exciting to have gone through that, I think it was actually, you know, when you sell these businesses, it's also very hard. You know, your your team ends up sort of going in different directions and you develop such a relationship with these brands, they start to become part of you. And, um, you know, I, I, 
I knew then, and I, I'm even, you know, we, we talk about it just always as a business that you really want to be part of the startups for the process, for the journey, because when you actually get to the exit, you know, it's usually in a, in a law firm at two in the morning on a Tuesday and no one, not even quite sure, did you close, did you not, you know, what happened now, what do we do? And it's, it's, it's really challenging, you know, usually, um, um, and so, so yeah. That, in terms of that was it was it was it was important to do it, and we're we're grateful to them. And you know, but I'd say looking back on it now, with the benefit of you know, I think it was much more about the learnings and and making sure that as we as we move forward, that there were you know that we we built the business in a way that was an evolved you know, version of that experience. Yeah. So after that kind of weird, awkward Tuesday in the law firm, <laughs> and they told you, you may or may not have closed and, you know, what'd you do? Like, you know, you had been investing, uh, it sounds like close to 10 years of your life into something every day. And then what? Yeah. So we, uh, so I, I actually, I was interested in the sparkling space for, for kind of towards the end of my time at Stirrings. We had a line of ginger ales and tonic waters um, that we had come out with. And, and uh, you know, we'd seen some kind of anecdotal evidence that that was an area that was interesting and exciting to consumers. We didn't really pursue it all that much, um, but it was a learning. And then I, I had imagined in my mind that I was going to have this nice long break and really clear my head and, and, and then really start thinking about it. And I think actually in a good way, I, I ended up jumping in and, and kind of starting almost right away thinking about soda. And, and um, in part, it was a subject that Diageo was actually bringing up a fair amount. You know, they, for the liquor brand, they mix, I think it's something like seven out of 10 drinks are made with a mixer so they were thinking about soda and soda going away, um, which is really a lot of the narrative at the end of 2000s and concerns around sugar and health and what will happen if there's no more sugar uh, soda. And, and so I, I kind of jumped into that and, and I was a big Diet Coke drinker. As I mentioned, I'd grown up you know, on a farm in Western Massachusetts and was really interested in food. You know, I was, I was, I was cooking a lot and, and really, I'd say more than ever, like interested in health and wellness and ingredients and how ingredients are processed or not processed. I had also spent some time living abroad at that point. So with with, with the partnership with Diageo, I spent two years in London and, and 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 in Europe, they were actually quite far ahead in terms of unprocessed ingredients. So you know things that. Like if you think about pasteurized cheeses or unpasteurized or milk that's pasteurized or not pasteurized, it, my experience in Europe was that a lot of the things that we really process in the U.S. are, are significantly less processed over in the U.K. and in Europe generally. So I came back with all of that and, and started looking at the sparkling space and, and really, I would say, like almost right away within – you know, a month or two, realized that in this huge category of sparkling beverages, there were there were really no products that met anything close to the standard of kind of real or unprocessed or that that I was now used to, you know, used to eating, used to cooking with, and that you know, that's a, that's a really fun moment when you kind of realize that because I had enough information about the packaged food world by then to know, you know, how, how to do it or, or some of it anyway. And, and here you had a category that's enormous in sparkling beverages. Um, and so I didn't then take any time off. I jumped in with both feet and almost like within a month or two of, of, working, you know, finishing my commitment to Stirrings, I began working on Spindrift um, full-time, just myself. Yeah, and so let's kind of like reset 
the stage here a little bit because I think that everyone listening to this has gone through this, I'll call it sparkling or seltzer revolution, right? Like now having uh, flavored water of some sort, sparkling water, now we have um, alcoholic seltzers. But really, that's exploded in the last, like, I don't know, let's just call it five years or something like that. Prior to that, this stuff wasn't really on anybody's radar. So, like, what did this look like? What did the sparkling category look like to you? And what was this, like, insight where you were like, uh, hello? It was, you, you, that is the perfect way to paint that picture because... It wasn't on anyone's radar, including ours, honestly. I mean, we, while well, we jumped into it with both feet starting kind of back end of 2009, and I say we meaning myself, and then thinking about it with, you know, sort of li- sort of the liquid kind of development, you know, ingredient folks that I, I started to, to work with, there, there was no obvious path. You know, in fact, I think the, the most popular opinion was that sparkling beverages were going to go away, that you were going to have just less consumption um, just because soda by then was really starting to disappear. So the, the thing people couldn't solve for was caffeine. You know, a lot of soda consumption is based around caffeine and, and having it at a time when you're looking for a little bit of a lift. And in order to replace that, you know, the thought was, okay, well, maybe it's energy drinks or maybe it's iced coffee. So it was this incredible challenge and just a head scratching challenge. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just at the product development level. It really was happening at the retail level. And, and that, that's really where it mapped in the consumer level, but just to stay with the retail for a minute, you know, it is, it is a big problem when a product like a, a category like soda starts to shrink for a retailer. I mean, they, you know, it just is such a big volume driver for them. It takes up so much space in the store. And so one of the fun things that started happening was we started to have conversations with, with people at the retail level, and they they were raising a lot of these same questions and wanting to engage in a conversation about how you solve it, you know, what what's coming next. And those, those relationships became invaluable for us. The, the consumer actually, I think, already kind of got it. I mean, looking back, when you when you think about when you look at some of those early products and 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 um, and what was happening with the regional brands around the country. So you got you have to remember with flavor sparkling water, there were there were regional brands or super regional brands exclusively. There were there really were no national brands in the beginning. And then there were two international brands with Perrier and San Pellegrino. And that was it. Like you had Polar, you had LaCroix in the center of the country, you had, you know, Mountain Valley, Springwater, you know, you had these sort of strong Topo Chico, these strong regional brands, and then a couple of international brands. And, and I think if you were in those markets at the time, even when we were starting, you probably saw the beginning of that sparkling water really kind of uptick. We didn't. So we, we, really, we actually started with more of a soda profile. So we thought the better, what, what was going to solve the soda problem was a better soda, was a, was a soda that had cleaner ingredients, that was, you know, better for you. So it was more of that whole ingredient approach as opposed, but it had some sugar in it. And actually even our early versions had natural flavors. It was really, once we got into it, we were two years in, in 2012, so we started in 2010, that we began making the unsweetened version. But we we were a refrigerated brand for four and a half, five years, and really more soda, I would say, oriented. And and here again, we we sort of as we began to make the product, and and the consumer began to really now voice their concerns around ingredients and sweeteners. And we also figured out the production side of the business. That's really where we we jumped in with both feet and, and actually, once again, I guess, retired the soda line. So we actually got out completely, even though it was actually quite a, you know, it was a good business and 
we decided we wanted to sort of go all in on sparkling water, you know, kind of 2015, 16. And that's, that's when, you know, that's when we, we really began to focus our, all of our energy around this, this, this space that we're now in today. Yeah, and, and where did the name come from? And as you answer that, it might also lead us to, you mentioned, hey, like, I started this by myself shortly thereafter leaving, um, you know, your your commitment um, after the acquisition. So where did the name come from? And then what did the the growth of the company look like? Like, when did it go from, you know, Bill plus somebody? <laughs> the name originated from the from my days working out on the fishing boat. So I was, I think I was 15 or so. And one of the captains I was working with, I, I was the mate on, on the boat. We were a charter fishing boat. Told me about this word called spindrift. And it was, you know, the way we were getting pounded by surf coming back from Great Point, kind of the far end of the island. And it was a beautiful sunny day, but we were soaking wet. And he said, you know what this, this mist is? that is blowing off at the top of these waves. And I, I didn't, and he said, well, it's called spindrift, and it's it's referring to sort of the whitewash of the wave as, as the wind blows, and it shears the top of the wave off. And for some reason, I just thought that word was really interesting. I don't know why exactly. It just, I thought spin and drift were two kind of fun, fun words, and I, I don't know why exactly it stuck, but someone I was, Fast forward to when I was thinking of a name for the sparkling water line that meant, you know, refreshing and and sort of light and bubbly and this sort of thing. Um, I, I came back to that word. As far as the growth, did it for a while uh, just by myself for a couple of years, and then and then brought on uh, a woman who who uh, was amazing and what. She did and had had done an amazing job pioneering other brands, um, and I had worked with her at Stearns, and she helped me on the West Coast, and so we we kind of went at it kind of on, on either side of the country, and and then as we started to get more traction, we brought on an operations person and customer service, and, and began to kind of build out the team more formally, and that is you know. I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't pause there to say, like, the team is really, you know, when you're when you're going up against Coke and Pepsi and these national, huge multinationals like day one, we we realized right away that we had to have a strategy that was different than everyone else. Like, we were not going to win just going right down the middle of a grocery store. I mean, these are these are these businesses are impenetrable if you take that approach, and so. Really, like what 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 we did is, it, and we sort of held hands together and said, like, we're going to come up with a way to try to outsmart or out, you know, kind of flank the competition, go places that they would not think to go or can't go because of their consumer or their customer advantage, whatever that was. And and we so we started um, actually in food service, so we. We really grew up in our brand really got traction early on in places like Sweet Green and Panera and Chopped and these other there were a whole there was a whole class of food service accounts that were starting to redefine what it meant to have a salad and a sandwich. At the same time we were trying to redefine what it meant to have a sparkling beverage. And we really partnered on this challenge of redefining this whole experience of consuming, you know, lunch ultimately, or just having a meal, what that meant from an ingredient standpoint. So, and then, and then that same thing happened with some of our retailers like Trader Joe's and Target and Whole Foods and, and, and independent retailers. Like they also, they, we had a special value for them that could not be met by some of the bigger guys in the category. Like they really got real ingredients. They got who we were, why we were different, and that our brand made meant more to them, or at least was interesting enough that they were willing to give us a shot. Um, and that and that that was a really important those were really important moments for us. Yeah, and and especially where you're sitting in your position now, that all sounds 
pretty awesome and great, but I can only imagine that you're sitting around, you know, conceiving a new business. You're like, we're going to go into a category that no one really knows. We're going to go, oh, by the way, part of that category is competing with the biggest brands in the world. And we're going to evangelize that and like, let's go team. And then I'm sure that had to be super terrifying at times. And how did you know that it was actually going to work? Like at what moment? Because I have to imagine there were times you're like, I don't even know if this is going to, (laughs) we're going to even pull this off. Yeah. I think you're always, in the recesses of your mind, I think it's actually healthy to always be saying like, we've got to keep, you know, we should never sort of rest on our laurels. So I would say we are, we still have that kind of mentality as a group um, even today. I think, I guess, you know, in 2016, we, we, we kind of moved pretty directly into, into the can format. We had been in glass for a little while. We got into the APAC, which is our current configuration, if you see it in a, in a retail store today. And we, we were lucky enough to begin working with, you know, some, some local and, and more national retailers that, that sort of put us into the sets now, like really for, firmly. And, and, and one retailer, Trader Joe's, I would say just to, because it's a branded product, I can sort of share that, but they, you know, they really were incredibly, you know, gracious with us in terms of, in terms of, you know, putting it, putting our product out into the, into the world and, and just without any real kind of, you know, push or any, any big advertising campaigns. And they go, well, how is it going to sell? Like it's on the show. Are people interested or are they not? And, and it, and the product really um, was, was really well received. And so I think that was probably a moment for us where we said, okay, I think even when we step away from the brand for a minute, we're not there pushing like crazy or sampling or convincing people they have to buy it you know, every moment of the day, there, there seems to be some organic excitement about this proposition that isn't just, you know, fleeting. And that, and that was certainly really important. Yeah. And, and you mentioned packaging and that you've gone through different packaging iterations, like how important and like, and that there's shelf space and how, you know, there's competition there. Like how important is, do you think packaging is to the success of your brand? It's, it's, it's super important in terms of, you know, it really is the main way you communicate with a consumer, especially early on. You know, you have to have a package that has, that cuts through the clutter, that immediately speaks to someone that has, you know, a shopping cart that's full and a kid who's screaming and they're on their cell phone. Like you, it, and, you and even in that environment, it needs to speak to them somehow. And so I, I think what was a big struggle for us and it's sort of a proof point in a lot of ways, but, but more struggle, I would say, is just that there wasn't even really a commonly understood language for this category. You know, some people in the Northeast called it seltzer. Some people called it sparkling water. Some people called it carbonated, you know, listed on an ingredient as a carbonate. There was, there was no, there was no commonly used vernacular, which is, which is exactly what you want in, in some ways because it means the category is still maturing. But in other ways, it presented challenges. And I would say the same as uh, with the design aesthetic. You know, it wasn't obvious to us, you know, because we have real ingredients, we have a couple of calories. Well, if you look at the packaging of every other brand in the category, there's just zeros all over the front of their pack because there is no caloric value to a natural flavor. There's just they're just, there's just a, a flavor. And so we, we had to figure out how to walk that fine line between making sure it was really clear we were sparkling water, so we needed to sit in the right place in the store, but also that actually a couple of calories were a proof point, that it's got lemons, it's got oranges, wow. Um, and so that... I mean, you can imagine the hours and hours of time just thinking about that delicate balance of being recognizable as a sparkling water, but also being, you know, pretty radically different 
you know, we have a little color. No one's ever seen color in sparkling water. What's it doing in the sparkling water aisle? No one's ever, you know, they just, there was so much that was different about our product that had not been tested before. It was quite, it was quite scary. And, and but also we, we started a loop of communication with our consumer that we've now, we have a, about 550,000 kind of drifters, which is what we call our community. And, and they, we really wanted to hear from them. Like, tell us what you think. And we really think about that as our true north now. You know, whenever we launch a product, we sort of talk to them, we run it by them, we get their input. And, and, and they also, I think, feel very comfortable with, uh, with sharing their point of view, you know, on things like packaging and, and what, what does it look like? And even with the recent launch of Spinder Spike, you know, we, we sort of did all of that kind of with the consumer input, even actually even retailer input, you know, along the way. Because I, I, I found that, that that kind of collaboration sets you up much more for success than sort of going off into a, a, a room somewhere and just designing it and debuting it and saying, here it is. You know, you, you take a lot of the risk equation out of it. So what's your favorite flavor of Spindrift? And, and, you know, you can't say it's like kids and you can't pick one or anything like that because it's sparkling water. It's not <laughs> your kids. So my line. I, I drink a lot of Spindrift. I drink, I average by six a day, something like that. And so I, I actually start with strawberry and, and pineapple, kind of the breakfasty sort of flavors. And then um, I always have a blackberry with lunch. I have a lemon with an espresso at two o'clock. I'm sort of a creature of habit. And then I sprinkle in half and half along the way. So I, I, I have favorite flavors at certain times of the day. Um, I would say more than an absolute favorite, just generally. It's fair enough. I'll accept that. That's a great answer. I like <laughs> that. And uh, so what does the future look like for Spindrift as we're sitting here and looking forward? What, where are you taking Spindrift and what are you most excited about? I think sparkling water is only just beginning. I, I think it is going to be, it already is, but I think by 2025, we think it will be the most important subcategory of beverage in our lifetimes. You know, it's projected now to be somewhere between 25 and, and $30 billion. When I started the business, we were hoping it would get to like three or four. And I'm including spiked and traditional flavored and all the versions of sparkling water. And so in that, from that point of view, with only kind of 2% household penetration as a brand today, we... We think there's only kind of up from here. So as a business, we're really preparing ourselves for that kind of growth and thinking about, you know, the, the ultimate challenge that you have as a startup, which is like, how do you maintain the culture and kind of the energy and the creativity and the passion with the backdrop of, of a, you know, a bigger business that needs systems and all of the kind of formalization that you have to have structure so you have to have as you grow. So I, I am, we are thrilled. We feel so fortunate to be in this position as a brand um, and feel really optimistic that, that we can, you know, really be, you know, one of the brands that sort of leads the way in terms of what the future of, of beverage will look like. You know, I think it will be very different than the way it used to be when we all sat around and, had big two liters of, of soda in the middle of our, our table, you know, with every meal. So we're excited for that. As you think back to that young Bill who was hustling around Western Mass and trying to start businesses and at farmer's market and doing this and that, if he saw you today, what do you think he'd say? I think he would say, A, you're a little crazy, just, you know, the the time commitment and, and, you know, the, the sort of the resources and just, you know, anguish required. But I, but I also think in many ways, they, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been, it will be a worthwhile investment. You know, I think it's similar to the advice that I, I'm often asked sort of about by young entrepreneurs, you know, what does all this mean? How do we look forward? And I think, I really think, that even though there was a longer journey for me than I, I'm sure than 
other folks who have done it more efficiently. I think there was those nicks and bruises and scars along the way ended up being so valuable, you know, now uh, to help inform decisions and, and uh, you know, keep, keep the boat rowing in the right direction. And that is Bill Krillman of Spindrift. It always amazes me how overnight successes take 20 years to build. Also, how previous businesses, roles, and experiences often ladder up and connect dots to the next great business. One thing that stood out to me was Bill's comment about how important it is to stand out from the crowd, to get the consumer's attention in the midst of everything else they have going on. I also thought it genius to not just be thinking about what does my customer drink, but what do they eat when they drink? What do they eat for lunch? Hmm, salads and light sandwiches? Our brand should be there too. Finding those complementary and adjacent brands are so important, yet overlooked by many businesses. Start thinking about the entire customer and you might find an insight that will help you end up being sold at Panera, Whole Foods, and Trader Joe's as well. A big thank you to Bill Creelman and the entire Spindrift team. Keep sparkling. We will link to all things Bill Creelman and Spindrift in the show notes. If you know of a guest who should appear on our show, please drop me a line at podcast at wildstory.com. Our best guests, like Bill, come from referrals from past guests and our listeners. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. A lot of big stories and I cannot lie, you other storytellers can't deny.